0: words. Just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. No need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and get yourself free. That catchy melody in the most prophetic style, Paul Simon seemed to single-handedly capture the relational conscience of America back in, anybody know? 1975. 1975. I remember when that song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, skyrocketed to popularity because it was the year that I graduated from high school. Yeah, wow. (laughs) I, I know who said that. It was the year I graduated from high school and just two years before I entered into a marital relationship with my wife, Denise. And it was long before I had developed a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as my Savior. And even then, I wondered why anyone would want to make light of something as painful as a breakup. As far as I could tell, in my short 18 years of experience, The demise of a couple's loving commitment to each other was not something to celebrate, but rather something to lament. In a long past edition now of the Oregon Journal, the Portland Evening newspaper ran this classified ad. This is the way it was written. Divorce service, $58. All legal fees and services included in one low price. And then it gave the phone number. Now, that was well over 12 years ago. The Sad fact is today, it's even easier and a whole lot less expensive to end your marriage. I found this one online the other day. Do-it-yourself divorce kit. <laughs> Valid in all 50 states, all forms and software included. Toll-free helpline included. No attorney needed. Up-to-date, the only guaranteed divorce kit available easy to understand, with step-by-step instructions, our price, $29.95 plus shipping and handling. And it says, before you check out any other divorce kits, remember that this one is 100% guaranteed to work or your money back. It's good stuff. Wait, it says, we aren't finished just yet. All orders placed now will include a free bonus, 597 ready-to-use sales letters and business forms on CD. The do-it-yourself divorce kit, don't wait, order today. And then it concludes this way, fast and discreet delivery, guaranteed. Your order can be shipped by priority mail for super-fast delivery All orders are shipped within 24 hours. All packages are plain and discreet. We care about your privacy, but we don't care about your marriage relationship. (laughs) That was, you know, ridiculous. But you can find them, and they're all over the place. This was just one of many that I found online. We in America have been seduced through every media available into believing that a marital nightmare can be ended with a blissful separation. Fallout we're experiencing in 2009 due to that lie is overwhelming. How easy it is, wrote George Malone, for the seed of divorce to be sown in unreflective consciences, even in Christians in stable marriages. According to a past issue of USA Today, In 1957, that was the year I was born, I'm really giving you all kinds of fuel today, aren't I? The number of states offering no-fault divorce was guess how many? One. One. Today, every state in the union offers no-fault divorce. Here's some statistics. Children in divorce situations are twice as likely to drop out of high school and are much more likely to do poorly in reading, spelling, and math. Such children are two to three times more likely to have emotional or behavior problems. They show substantially higher crime rates, and according to one study, 60% of rapists, 72% of adolescent murderers, 70% of long-term prison inmates come from fatherless homes. Those are huge percentages. They suffer much higher rates of both physical and sexual abuse. In the latter case, most often carried out by the mother's boyfriend. Here are a couple more. Not that I want to just keep on hammering it, but just a couple more. People between the ages of 25 to 39 make up 60% of all divorces. Here's one for you. More people are part of second marriages today in this country than first marriages. And these statistics are no longer going to be available because the United States has decided the government is no longer collecting comprehensive detailed statistics on marriage and divorce. No more. I would say that probably everybody in this room right now, and believe me, this weighed heavy on my mind when I came to this passage of scripture to preach on it, everyone in this room right now has been either hurt directly or indirectly by the sting of divorce. You've been touched by it. In fact, it's a rare thing in any given classroom today to have children that live at home with their two original parents. It's rare. That is tragic. But I don't want to quote a barrage of divorce statistics because they have a way of dulling our senses and our responses to the ugliness of this thing called divorce. The conclusion of a Time Magazine essay on divorce hammers home the undeniable truth. This is Time Magazine now. Quote, divorce is always a tragedy, no matter how civilized the handling of it, it is always a confession of human failure, even when it is the sorry better of sorry alternatives. No one benefits when a marriage dissolves. Everybody loses. Now, I don't want to suggest to you this morning that there is a simple overnight solution to your marital problems or emotional unhappiness. I'm not that naive, nor do I expect that you are either. However, I will declare without apology that divorce and adultery is not the way out it appears to be. It is no happy solution. Anyone who's been through it will tell you that. Even those outside the evangelical camp will tell you that. One author put it this way there's nothing wrong with desiring happiness, but horrendous problems develop when we become disobedient to God to obtain it. Instead of suggesting that there must be 50 ways to leave your lover, Don't you think we ought to be exhausting the possibilities that there must be at least 500 ways to keep them? Author and business leader Fred Smith writes, one of the treasured memories, one of my treasured memories, comes from a donut shop in Grand Saline, Texas. He says there was a young farm couple sitting at a table next to mine, and he was wearing overalls, and she a gingham dress, and after finishing their donuts, he got up to pay the bill, and I noticed that she didn't get up with him. But then he came back and stood in front of her. And she put her arms around his neck, and he lifted her up, revealing that she was wearing a full-body brace. He lifted her out of her chair, backed out the front door to the pickup truck with her hanging from his neck. And as he gently put her into the truck, everyone in the shop was watching them. No one said anything for a long time until a waitress remarked almost reverently, he took his vows seriously. Amen. Paul Simon may have been the musician who voiced the mindset of America in 1975, but the prophet Malachi is the messenger who communicated the heart of God for all time on the issue of relational commitment and marital fidelity. And he doesn't suggest that there are 50 ways or five ways or even one acceptable way to dissolve a marriage relationship. His heart is crystal clear. Malachi reiterates the truth that God hates divorce no matter what way it happens. Let's talk about what God is for. God is for commitment. God is for taking our vows seriously. Turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, if you will. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And I'm going to read them. You can follow along. This is another thing you do, Malachi says. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do when he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed to then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There are no words this morning available to me which will soften the blow of this passage of Scripture. But at the same time, it's not my job to condemn anyone. My purpose is to call Christians to an exalted view of the marital relationship. God's view of it. And Malachi's reasoning is pretty clear and obvious. When God's ideal for marriage is compromised, the community of God's people crumbles. Everybody takes a hit. When God instituted the covenant of marriage and placed his blessings on the beauty and intimacy of this one flesh relationship, he had permanence in mind. God never intended this covenant to be terminated. His design in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 is evident. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24. Well, it'll be on the screen for you. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You ever stick your fingers together with super glue? How do you get them apart? You got to rip them apart, don't you? And they don't come cleanly apart, do they? You end up tearing skin off of one or the other, and you bleed. That's the picture in the Hebrew language of this particular scripture. When he says, the two shall become one flesh and shall be joined to his wife, it means superglued to the point of non-separation. When you rip those two people apart after that, there's blood. There's a tearing apart of not just two individual peoples, but one. Something that God has made one. Here's the basic architecture for the family for the community, for the society in general. Any human attempt to redesign what God ordained, that God ordained foundation, produces structural cracks, which eventually cause the whole thing to come crumbling down. Spiritually, the same thing's true. When God's ideal for marriage is compromised, the community of God's people begins to crumble. In the 25-year, 100-year-old words of Malachi, there is a strong strong message here in this text for the contemporary church of 2009. First thing that we find here in verses 13 and the first part of 14 is, I think God is saying, is get rid of the spiritual hypocrisy. Look at that again. Malachi 2. Verse 13. It's another, this is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Now in the previous verses, verses 10 to 12, which we went over a couple of weeks ago, God came down very hard on the fact that the people had violated the covenant they had made with God by marrying foreign women, okay, which was forbidden in the Old Testament, Their history of relational compromise had brought devastating consequences. They went into captivity, and now they're finding out that they're in the same trap again. Relational compromise. Now, relational compromise is one thing, but in these verses, verses 13 to 16, God reveals a little bit more. He reveals another detail about the situation. The people were not only marrying foreign women, but it seems that they were divorcing their Jewish wives in order to do it. No-fault divorce accentuated the problem of wrong marriages and adding insult to injury. They'd go to the temple and they'd cry over the fact that God was no longer blessing their lives. God charged, and this is another thing that you do. God's saying, basically, and another thing. Your spiritual hypocrisy makes me ill. You flood the altar with your whining and your moaning and your tears, but why? Is it true sorrow? I think that's what God is implying here. The fact is, is that these worshipers were not sorry that they had been unfaithful. Far from it. They were crying out to God, not because of repentance, but because they didn't have God's recognition anymore. Because they were living in unrepentant sin, God had turned a deaf ear to them and he was no longer acknowledging the offerings or the prayers or their worship and he had stopped blessing them. That gets right to the heart of it, doesn't it? The reason that they were crying over the altar, at the altar, wasn't because they were sorry. It was because God wasn't blessing them anymore. They wanted blessing, but they didn't want revival. Doesn't that characterize the church today? Large segment of it? I think it does. People want spiritual rewards, but without the required repentance that goes along with it. In my short few years of being in the ministry, I've come to the realization that tears don't usually mean much of anything. True sorrow over sin brings a change of heart and a change of direction. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, in the New Living Translation says this, For God can, cause, can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow, but sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. God's looking for true sorrow. It means a heart that breaks over sin and God will honor that kind of a sorrow. But from heartless offerings and crocodile tears, it says he will turn his face. That's what the phrase means in verse 13 here when he says "The, the Lord no longer regards. He no longer regards the offering or accepts it in Hebrew that phrase literally means to turn away the face and you know what that means it means to reject that's precisely what he does in the presence of a heart that is unwilling to forsake sin and embrace his well God will hide his face from our attempts to worship when deep in our hearts we know that we are secretly harboring sin Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Listen, says Isaiah, the Lord is not too weak to save you. And he's not becoming deaf. He can hear you when you call. But there is a problem. Your sins have cut you off from God. Because of your sin, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. But on the flip side, there's some good stuff. Psalm 34, I'd like you to turn there, if you would. Psalm 34. Psalm 34 and verse 15. 15 to 18. Listen to what this says. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Now there's some hope. How often have we come into the church knowing that we're living a lifestyle and making daily decisions that are completely contrary to God's will and yet expect Him to hear our prayers and accept our worship and put His hand of blessing on our lives. And then as God removes that hand of blessing from our lives, we cry out, why? Why? Why aren't you hearing me? Why don't you make me feel better? Why, God, do you seem so far away? You know, when a married person comes into my office and asks me for answers to questions like that, one of the first thoughts that I have is this How's your marriage? How's your marriage doing? Is God pleased with your relationship to your spouse? Because when you're not re- fulfilling your biblical responsibilities in your marriage, then your relationship with God is going to be seriously strained. How many agree with that? I mean, read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Your prayers can be hindered if your relationship with your spouse is not where it's supposed to be or on track. God didn't waste any time pointing that out to Malachi's audience. Their religious bankruptcy was evidenced by their spiritual hypocrisy and it stemmed primarily from the fact that they were refusing to admit their sin. And so that's what I think Malachi is really getting at. The second thing he's getting at here is admit the truth about marital infidelity. Verse 14. Second half of the second part of the verse. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, that's why I don't accept it with favor against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What this audience had considered to be a private affair was public knowledge to God. He'd seen the whole deal. In answer to their arrogant question, why aren't you blessing us? God answered, I'll tell you why. It's because I've seen your treachery in divorcing your wives who have been faithful to you through the years, the companions you promised to care for and keep. That's why. The words here in this verse cannot be any more disturbing to me. Look at them. Verse 14. Because the Lord has been a witness. Literally, this says, I am witness in the scriptures. That's pretty unnerving, isn't it? God declares himself to be the ultimate witness, one who has firsthand knowledge of an event. He's keenly aware of our integrity, our character, and he's equally aware of our deepest, darkest sins. Listen, friends, there's nothing that you and I have ever done that has ever been hidden from God's full view. Nothing. Not one thing. Isn't that a little... Nerve-wracking for you. It should be. According to Hebrews 4.13, our secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Our lives are open and laid bare before Him whom we have to do with. He sees it all. What you hide from your friends, what you hide from me, what you hide from your boss, or even from your husband or wife is not hidden to God. He's witness. Proverbs chapter 5, and verse 21 says this. You might want to forget this verse. Don't memorize it. Forget this one. The Lord sees everything you do. Wherever you go, he's watching. You realize I'm just kidding when I say forget that verse. You can forget it if you want to, but it's not going to change the truth of it. In fact, I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 5 because I want you to see the context in which this verse is written. Because we tend to forget this part. Proverbs chapter 5, the verse is 21 that I just quoted, but let me read you the greater context from verse 15. Drink water from your own, this is metaphorical language, by the way, Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? What's he talking about? He's not talking about drinking water. He's talking about your relationship with your spouse and violating that. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. There's that phrase again. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated, literally be intoxicated. Always with her love. For why should you, my son, be intoxicated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all of his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin and he will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. You want to know what you have to do in order to engage continually in this sin that Solomon's talking about here? You either have to convince yourself that God is not watching you and he can't see you, or that you just really don't care. God was there on the day you took your vows, he was witness. And he will be there if you break those vows as a witness. He's a witness, the scripture says, between you and the wife of your youth, the one to whom you pledged your lifelong commitment. Men, I'm going to address you this morning predominantly because that's who God specifically addresses in this context. Now, that doesn't let you wives off the hook. Because I believe that the statistics concerning marital unfaithfulness clearly show that the heart of the problem is predominantly in the hearts of men. But believe it or not, that's changing. Men, we need seriously to consider what God is saying about our relationship to our wives. It is an enduring relationship, it is a complete relationship, and it is a covenantal relationship what we find here in Malachi. First, marriage is to be an enduring relationship. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, my wife will tell you, and I've told you before from this platform, I love this expression, the wife of your youth. It's my favorite biblical description of what the marriage relationship should be from a husband's perspective. A lifelong covenant that is honored by a husband, from the immature and frail stages of those early years to the staid and strong season of old age. It's a promise that his first love will remain his only love. It's a phrase of wholehearted commitment. In the ancient Near East, marriages were contracted at a very early age, in fact, according to the Jewish Talmud, a young man was considered cursed if he was not married by the age of 20. This is true. 20. I just made it. <laughs> I was 19 when I married Denise. She truly is the wife of my youth. When we were first married, she used to say to me, I can't wait to grow old with, together with you. Those are the words of youthful love. Now after 31, almost 32 years of marriage, and not by the way without its problems, every now and then, we'll look at each other and say, we're living the dream, (laughs) and we mean it. A few years ago, I picked up the Sun Journal, and I was overcome by a small item on the front page I actually put it on the bulletin board here at church a few years ago. What arrested my attention was the simple headline, Lasting Love. And what followed next was nothing short of amazing to me. The caption read A couple who met in 1916 and fell in love at first sight has the nation's longest lasting marriage. 80 years. I was absolutely stunned. 80 years. I now have a file since then with a number of articles about couples who have been married for 70, 80, 81, 82, 83 years. 83 years. In fact, I got this online. couple married 83 years share their secret. It says they don't have a magic formula to explain the success of their marriage. They just took seriously what they said to each other when they stood at the altar. Quote, you take your vows for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, Mame said. I guess you just stick to it come what may. 83 years. You got to stick to it. Guys, how many of you still see your spouse as the wife of your youth? Do you ever refer to her that way, to other people, to her? Try it. it. Write it to her. Put it on a card. Tell her face to face. I guarantee it will give you and her a refreshing view of your relationship. The problem today is that a lot of guys see their wives as a prison of middle age not the wife of their youth. In fact, they proceed to throw their relationship away for the lure of a women of women who resemble their wives in their youth. Isn't that true? And God calls it treachery. Verse 14. I have been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The word translated treacherously here means to break faith, to deal deceitfully and then to cover it over so as to act falsely. Literally, it means to pillage. That's a strong word. And that's exactly what adultery and divorce is. Treachery and pillaging. And when it characterizes a whole nation, God's heart breaks wide open acting as God's mouthpiece, the prophet Jeremiah reveals the incredible hurt that God feels over our sin in this area. Jeremiah um, chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, first three verses. And um, as some of you know, Jeremiah is also called the weeping prophet, and this is where we get this from. He's crying all the time. The reason he was crying all the time is because God had put it into him. God had put his own heart into him. So he felt what God felt, I believe. And he prophesied to the nation as a representative of God. And it says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodge, lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them, for all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah lamented the conditions which drove his nation into captivity. About 200 years later, Malachi addressed the same issues. And in 2009, we sit in this building with a convicting realization that the church is in desperate need of the same prophetic voice. Martin Luther King once said this. He said, we shall have to repent in this generation, not so much for the evil deeds of the wicked people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Folks, let's stop beating around the bush, shall we? And start calling sin what it is. Sin. The only thing worse than the epidemic itself is the way in which we refer to it. We call it an affair. A moral lapse in judgment. You know, that's that's like claiming that jumping off a building could lead to sudden deceleration trauma. Yeah, but what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Death. So let's cut the double talk. Let's put the cards on the table. Let's call divorce and adultery what it is. It's war on the family. It's treason. It's treachery, God says. When a professing Christian man abandons his wife and his kids for another woman and starts living his life like a high school freshman on his first date, it's not an affair. It's treachery. Listen, friends, every marriage has its down times. Discontentment occurs. Temptation abounds. But don't buy into the double L's of adultery. The double L's are the lure and the lie. The lure and the lie of adultery is that another woman or man will meet your needs and fill your emptiness. Here's the truth. No other woman or man on the face of this earth no matter how young and attractive, has the capacity to fully meet the needs of another human being. Your spouse can't even meet those needs. Only life in Christ can meet those needs. God's the only one that can meet those needs. Adultery is the ultimate hopes because it promises what it cannot deliver. You read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 this week. See what Solomon says about it. Marriage is not only to be an enduring relationship and a complete relationship, but it's to be a covenant relationship. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me say something about the complete relationship. God says in Malachi here that your wife is your companion. She's your partner, the one to which you have become joined. You're not two, but have become one. We've talked about that. That's what that Genesis passage is all about. And Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24 repeatedly when the subject of divorce and remarriage came up in his ministry to emphatically underscore the permanence and exclusiveness of the one flesh relationship. Marriage is complete, is a complete relationship and it's also a covenant relationship. In Malachi 2.14, she is your wife by covenant. Covenant means commitment. Commitment means you promised. You promised, you vowed. The Bible says pay your vows or don't vow. Men and women, when you enter into marriage and you say the words, I take you to be my wife or my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, so long as we both shall live According to God's holy ordinance, this pledge I make to you in good faith. You know what you're saying? You're saying what the Marines have claimed as their motto for years, Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. Always faithful. Faithful with your eyes, faithful with your mind, faithful with your lips, faithful with your hands and your feet, faithful with your heart and your soul. Men, that means that you have committed yourself to being a one-woman man. Women, a one-man woman. And that's a commitment we need to renew every single day of our lives. Every day. Why? Because we live in a society that thinks Ten Commandments are too many. And it especially wants to eliminate number seven, which says, you shall not commit adultery. Yet as someone accurately pointed out, it's precisely this commandment that holds families together. Guys, Semperford in marriage means getting a backbone. Not like Bob's. Bob was telling his friend that he and his wife had a serious argument the night before, that day at work. But it ended, Bob said, when she came crawling to me on her hands and knees. (coughs) What did she say, asked the friends. Bob replied, She said, come out from under that bed, you coward. (laughs) that's a backbone. The marital infidelity of Malachi's day was a major factor in the spiritual decline of the nation. Divorce and remarriage had become so widespread, so acceptable that at times even preferable to the blueprint that God had laid out for his people, that the people were shocked when God's prophet took them to task. And the parallels to today are just, they don't need any explanation. Divorce is pandemic, even among believers. It's so pandemic that when anyone even tries to speak to the issue, cries of judgmentalism and intolerance arise. I've had people tell me, In my office, I need to be more open-minded and gracious when it comes to this issue. The hard truth is, is that when it comes to this issue, being open-minded about something that God has very clearly declared treachery can only mean having a mind too porous to hold any solid conviction. God's Word is the plumb line of truth. And we must realize that in time of war, the first casualty is usually truth. And there is an all-out war against the family by the enemy of God. He knows that he cannot destroy a family without dividing the husband and wife. So that is where he puts his energy. The only way to counteract the spiritual decline of the nation is to turn things around in the church and in our own lives. And you know what that word is for that? Repentance. It means turn around. Change your mind. Get on God's track. That means acknowledging the power of the Holy Spirit and embracing your personal responsibility. That's what Malachi says in verse 15 and 16. But not one has done so as a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit and that you do not deal treacherously. We simply must believe that what the word of God says is true, is true. And verse 15 is recognized by scholars here as being the most difficult verse to translate and interpret in the entire book of Malachi. So if you're confused about the way it reads in your Bible, you're in good company. Because everyone's confused about it, even the scholars. Various interpretations have been suggested, but let me suggest to you what I think best fits the context of Malachi. The NIV puts it like this Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife. Of your youth, makes sense to me, because I think God's appealing to His design of a monogamous marriage in creation. In Genesis, God created Adam and Eve to become one flesh. He could have created Adam and other wives, but He didn't. He gave him one. He created one wife, one companion, one lifelong partner for the express purpose of giving them godly offspring. Malachi is commending this wise plan of God in creation. He's calling for a return to that plan. The fact that these Israelites were divorcing their wives and intermarrying with foreign women was actually counterproductive to God's original design and purposes. And the result of that was the spiritual corruption of the nation and eventual destruction of it. And the same kind of counterproductive pattern is devastating Christians today. God's plan for us is to raise up believing children who will be salt and light in the world and that's being thwarted by our self-absorbed activity. This is the way the Living Bible puts it. it puts it in perspective. You were united to your wife by the Lord. This is Malachi 2 for 15. In God's wise plan when you married, the two of you became one person in his sight. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. Therefore, God, your passions, keep faith with the wife of your youth. So guard your spirit. Protect it. Don't succumb to the pressure of your emotions or what the world says. The world says, this is what the world says. world says, if your marriage is on the rocks, start again. Get a divorce. $29.95. Don't rely on God to get you through the tough times. Oh, Don't do that. Don't pray about an impossible situation. Heaven forbid. You can't be lonely and unhappy for the rest of your life. Take the bull by the horns. Stop being unrealistic. Divorce your spouse and get on with your life. Isn't that what the world says? I've heard some pastors say that. What does God say? God says in verse 16, it's right there in verse 16, but nobody who's in a tough situation ever wants to read this part of the scripture. God says, don't get a divorce. I hate it. That's strong language. This verse, folks, is not one of those difficult to translate verses like verse 15. (laughs) Not at all. In fact, I would go on record probably to say that on the flip side of verse 15, verse 16 is probably the easiest verse to translate in the book of Malachi. It says what it says. And it means what it says. God utterly hates divorce. In fact, the grammar implies that he never stops hating it. It's a continual thing. He despises it, detests it. He's never pleased with it. Never, under any circumstances. This is clearly the strongest word in the entire scripture concerning God's heart on this issue. And why does he hate it? Because it breaks faith. It separates. He hates it because it demolishes what he himself has designed. It's the devil's tool of choice. And it's no mere hand tool either. It's a power tool. And he wields it to destroy. Secular writer Pat Conroy observes in his book, Death of a Marriage, he says, each divorce is the death of a small civilization. It's true. And I might add that each one contributes to the demise of the greater one. Divorce causes violence and heartache to everyone even remotely connected to it including God himself. I got a couple of excerpts from a book called Love Letters, Responding to Children in Pain. These letters are written by kids. It says, Dear so-and-so, I want to know how to clear my problems about this divorce. Please, please, please help me. This is without doubt And the spelling's really off here. The worst thing that has ever happened to me. Sincerely, someone who needs help. So child wrote this. Another one. I need help in my mom and dad's divorce. It still doesn't heal my wounds. It terribly hurts my wounds. How can I stop that? I wish I will just forget it today, but never ever stops. Please help me. I cry, but crying never helps me. I wish I knew what happened, and I know I wish it never happened. My mom and dad loved me, and the other kids, why can't they love each other? My friend's mom is getting married. Boy, oh boy, she's lucky. I hope you can teach me how to get that out. Thanks, Rachel. It just annihilates children. That's why there's no such thing as a good divorce. No such thing as an easy divorce. Verse 16 says that when you get into a divorce, it says in verse 16 here that it's like you splatter your clothes with wrong. Him who covers his garment with wrong, so take heed to your spirit. That's why I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus' word ultimate word on the subject was this. From the beginning, Moses permitted you to get divorced, Jesus said to the Pharisees, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. What therefore God has joined together, Jesus says, let no man separate. Therefore, says Malachi, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Or as the Jerusalem Bible puts it, Respect your own life, therefore, and do not break faith like this. If the community is to, f- to survive, folks, then the church must survive. If the church is to survive, then families must endure. But before families can endure, marriage must be revered. And when marriage is revered, the lure of Divorce absolutely loses its pull. Now, my greatest fear today, after A message like this is that the wrong people will walk out of here feeling bad and the people who really need to apply it won't. If you've been divorced and have worked through this pain, repented of your failures and are walking close to God now in whatever situation you're in, don't let the devil drag you into feeling guilty and reliving all that junk. You've been forgiven. Live in forgiveness. The sad fact is, is that divorce has happened and it is happening in the Christian community. How are we to respond to that? Real quickly here. Number one, if you are divorced, don't panic. God forgives. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God forgives this sin just as he does any other. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He died, was buried, and was raised in order for the forgiveness of that sin to be applied to you when you come to faith in him. That's what Jesus did. Secondly, don't despair. God restores. God uses the failures of our past, and even though there may be continuing consequences that we experience, and some emotional upheaval, He picks up the broken pieces of our lives and gives us a new beginning. God restores our life to us when we come to Him. Third, if you are not divorced, don't judge those who are, because God forbids that. God can and will use a divorced person, to minister in the church in countless ways which are vital to the healing of people's emotions and lives. We're not to stigmatize or shun people who have been through the pain of divorce. It is every believer's responsibility to love, encourage, and exhort them to Christ. Fourth, if you are in a difficult marriage and contemplating a divorce, Don't divorce. God's heart breaks over it. The rabbis had a saying that we all ought to remember. The very altar sheds tears when a man divorces the wife of his youth. Seek help if you're in that place. Don't lose hope. There are plenty of great resources and experienced people who can walk with you through this if you allow them to. And that's the ticket. Most people in this place don't allow other people to help them. Seek out help and hope. Let me give you one more statistic. The Institute for American Values study found that almost 8 out of 10 people who avoided divorce were happily married five years later worked at it. And don't give up on God. He has not given up on you. God will honor your efforts when you seek to honor Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, the grace of Jesus Christ that forgives us from every sin when we lay our hearts and ourselves before His throne and his cross I pray for those Lord God that are hurting here today I pray for your spirit of peace and encouragement and help to come upon them I pray for those that have maybe made some mistakes in their past lives and maybe have not sought forgiveness from your hand father well up inside of their souls this morning Let them know that you love them and that forgiveness is available simply for the asking and for the coming to the acceptance of Christ and his gift. And I pray, Lord God and our Father, that if we, the body of Christ, know people who are in in the middle of these turbulent marital conflicts and relational strains, that we would come along, so do everything in our power to come alongside of them and help them through it. That the joy of oneness might be returned to their souls. Be with us, Father, as we leave this place today. And may we set your presence going with us, I pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.